The Golden Bough, Part Three, being Chapter Three, Sections Three and Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter Three, Section. Three. Contagious Magic Thus far we have been considering chiefly that branch of sympathetic magic which may be called homeopathic or imitative. Its leading principle, as we have seen, is that like produces like, or in other words, that an effect resembles its cause. The other great branch of sympathetic magic, which I have called contagious magic, proceeds upon the notion that things which have once been conjoined must remain ever afterwards, even when quite dissevered from each other, in such a sympathetic relation that whatever is done to the one must similarly affect the other. Thus the logical basis of contagious magic, like that of homeopathic magic, is a mistaken association of ideas. Its physical basis, if we may speak of such a thing, like the physical basis of homeopathic magic, is a material medium of some sort, which, like the ether of modern physics, is assumed to unite distant objects and to convey impressions from one to the other. The most familiar example of contagious magic is the magical sympathy which is supposed to exist between a man and any severed portion of his person, as his hair or nails so that whoever gets possession of human hair or nails may work his will at any distance upon the person from whom they were cut. This superstition is world-wide. Instances of it in regard to hair and nails will be noticed later on in this work. Among the Australian tribes it was a common practice to knock out one or more of a boy's front teeth at those ceremonies of initiation to which every male member had to submit before he could enjoy the rights and privileges of a full-grown man. The reason of the practice is obscure. All that concerns us here is the belief that a sympathetic relation continued to exist between the lad and his teeth after the latter had been extracted from his gums. Thus, among some of the tribes about the River Darling in New South Wales, the extracted tooth was placed under the bark of a tree near a river or water-hole. If the bark grew over the tooth, or if the tooth fell into the water, all was well. But if it were exposed, and the ants ran over it, the natives believed that the boy would suffer from a disease of the mouth. Among the Murring and other tribes of New South Wales, the extracted tooth was first taken care of by an old man, and then passed from one headman to another, until it had gone all round the community, when it came back to the lad's father, and finally to the lad himself. But however it was thus conveyed from hand to hand, it might on no account be placed in a bag containing magical substances, for to do so would, they believed, put the owner of the tooth in great danger. The late Dr. Howitt once acted as custodian of the teeth, which had been extracted from some novices at a ceremony of initiation, and the old men earnestly besought him not to carry them in a bag in which they knew that he had some quartz crystals. They declared that if he did so, the magic of the crystals would pass into the teeth, and so injure the boys. 
nearly a year after Dr. Howitt's return from the ceremony, he was visited by one of the principal men of the Mulling tribe, who had travelled some two hundred and fifty miles from his home to fetch back the teeth. This man explained that he had been sent for them because one of the boys had fallen into ill health, and it was believed that the teeth had received some injury which had affected him. He was assured that the teeth had been kept in a box apart from any substances like quartz crystals which could influence them, and he returned home bearing the teeth with him carefully wrapped up and concealed. The Basutos are careful to conceal their extracted teeth, lest these should fall into the hands of certain mythical beings who haunt graves, and who could harm the owner of the tooth by working magic on it. In Sussex some fifty years ago, a maid-servant remonstrated strongly against the throwing away of children's cast teeth, affirming that should they be found and gnawed by any animal, the child's new tooth would be, for all the world, like the teeth of the animal that had bitten the old one. In proof of this, she named old Master Simmons, who had a very large pig's tooth in his upper jaw, a personal defect that he had always averred was caused by his mother, who threw away one of his cast teeth by accident into the hog's trough. A similar belief has led to practices intended, on the principles of homeopathic magic, to replace old teeth by new and better ones. Thus, in many parts of the world, it is customary to put extracted teeth in some place where they will be found by a mouse or a rat, in the hope that through the sympathy which continues to subsist between them and their former owner, his other teeth may acquire the same firmness and excellence as the teeth of these rodents. For example, in Germany, it is said to be an almost universal maxim among the people, that when you have had a tooth taken out, you should insert it in a mouse's hole. To do so, with a child's milk tooth which has fallen out, will prevent the child from having toothache. Or you should go behind the stove and throw your tooth backwards over your head, saying, Mouse! Give me your iron tooth. I will give you my bone tooth. After that your other teeth will remain good. Far away from Europe, at Raratonga in the Pacific, when a child's tooth was extracted, the following prayer used to be recited. Big rat, little rat, here is my old tooth. Pray give me a new one. Then the tooth was thrown on the thatch of the house, because rats make their nests in the decayed thatch. The reason assigned for invoking the rats on these occasions was that rats' teeth were the strongest known to the natives. Other parts which are commonly believed to remain in a sympathetic union with the body, after the physical connection has been severed, are the navel string and the afterbirth, including the placenta. So intimate indeed is the union conceived to be, that the fortunes of the individual for good or evil throughout life are often supposed to be bound up with one or other of these portions of his person, so that if his navel-string or afterbirth is preserved and properly treated, he will be prosperous, whereas if it be injured or lost, he will suffer accordingly. Thus certain tribes of Western Australia believe that a man swims well or ill, according as his mother at his birth threw the navel-string into water or not. Among the natives of the Pennefather River, in Queensland, it is believed that a part of the child's spirit, Cho-e, stays in the afterbirth. Hence the grandmother takes the afterbirth away, and buries it in the sand. 
She marks the spot by a number of twigs which she sticks in the ground in a circle, tying their tops together so that the structure resembles a cone. When Angia, the being who causes conception in women by putting mud babies into their wombs, comes along and sees the place, he takes out the spirit and carries it away to one of his haunts, such as a tree, a hole in a rock or a lagoon, where it may remain for years. But some time or other he will put the spirit again into a baby, and it will be born once more into the world. In Ponape, one of the Caroline Islands, the navel string is placed in a shell, and then disposed of in such a way as shall best adapt the child for the career which his parents have chosen for him. For example, if they wish to make him a good climber, they will hang the navel string on a tree. The Kay Islanders regard the navel string as the brother or sister of the child, according to the sex of the infant. They put it in a pot with ashes, and set it in the branches of a tree, that it may keep a watchful eye on the fortunes of its comrade. Among the Bataks of Sumatra, as among many other peoples of the Indian archipelago, the placenta passes for the child's younger brother or sister, the sex being determined by the sex of the child, and it is buried under the house. According to the Bataks, it is bound up with the child's welfare, and seems, in fact, to be the seat of the transferable soul, of which we shall hear something later on. The Karo Bataks even affirm that of a man's two souls, it is the true soul that lives with the placenta under the house, that is, the soul, they say, which begets children. The Baganda believe that every person is born with a double, and this double they identify with the afterbirth, which they regard as a second child. The mother buries the afterbirth at the root of a plantain tree, which then becomes sacred until the fruit has ripened, when it is plucked to furnish a sacred feast for the family. Among the Cherokees, the navel string of a girl is buried under a corn mortar, in order that the girl may grow up to be a good baker. But the navel string of a boy is hung up on a tree in the woods, in order that he may be a hunter. The Incas of Peru preserved the navel string with the greatest care, and gave it to the child to suck whenever it fell ill. In ancient Mexico, they used to give a boy's navel string to soldiers to be buried by them on a field of battle, in order that the boy might thus acquire a passion for war. But the navel string of a girl was buried beside the domestic hearth, because this was believed to inspire her with a love of home and a taste for cooking and baking. Even in Europe many people still believe that a person's destiny is more or less bound up with that of his navel string or afterbirth. Thus, in Rhenish Bavaria, the navel string is kept for a while wrapped up in a piece of old linen, and then cut or pricked to pieces according as the child is a boy or a girl, in order that he or she may grow up to be a skilful workman or a good sempstress. In Berlin, the midwife commonly delivers the dried navel string to the father, with a strict injunction to preserve it carefully, for so long as it is kept the child will live and thrive and be free from sickness. In Beauce and Perche, the people are careful to throw the navel string neither into water nor into fire, believing that if that were done, the child would be drowned or burnt. Thus, in many parts of the world, the navel string, or more commonly the afterbirth, is regarded as a living being, the brother or sister of the infant. 
or as the material object in which the guardian spirit of the child or part of its soul resides. Further, the sympathetic connection supposed to exist between a person and his afterbirth or navel string comes out very clearly in the widespread custom of treating the afterbirth or navel string in ways which are supposed to influence for life the character and career of the person, making him, if it is a man, a nimble climber, a strong swimmer, a skilful hunter or a brave soldier, and making her, if it is a woman, a cunning sempstress, a good baker, and so forth. Thus the beliefs and usages concerned with the afterbirth or placenta, and to a less extent with the navel string, present a remarkable parallel to the widespread doctrine of the transferable or external soul, and the custom founded on it. Hence it is hardly rash to conjecture that the resemblance is no mere chance coincidence, but that in the afterbirth or placenta we have a physical basis, not necessarily the only one, for the theory and practice of the external soul. The consideration of that subject is reserved for a later part of this work. A curious application of the doctrine of contagious magic is the relation commonly believed to exist between a wounded man and the agent of the wound, so that whatever is subsequently done by or to the agent must correspondingly affect the patient either for good or evil. Thus Pliny tells us that if you have wounded a man, and are sorry for it, you have only to spit on the hand that gave the wound, and the pain of the sufferer will be instantly alleviated. In Melanesia, if a man's friends get possession of the arrow which wounded him, they keep it in a damp place or in cool leaves, for then the inflammation will be trifling, and will soon subside. Meantime the enemy who shot the arrow is hard at work to aggravate the wound by all the means in his power. For this purpose he and his friends drink hot burning juices, and chew irritating leaves, for this will clearly inflame and irritate the wound. Further they keep the bow near the fire to make the wound which it has inflicted hot, and for the same reason they put the arrowhead, if it has been recovered, into the fire. Moreover they are careful to keep the bowstring taut, and to twang it occasionally, for this will cause the wounded man to suffer from tension of the nerves, and spasms of tetanus. It is constantly received and avouched, says Bacon, that the anointing of the weapon that maketh the wound will heal the wound itself. In this experiment, upon the relation of men of credit, though myself as yet am not fully inclined to believe it, you shall note the points following. First, the ointment wherewith this is done is made of diverse ingredients, whereof the strangest and hardest to come by are the moss upon the skull of a dead man unburied, and the fats of a boar and a bear killed in the act of generation. The precious ointment, compounded out of these and other ingredients, was applied, as the philosopher explains, not to the wound, but to the weapon, and that even though the injured man was at a great distance and knew nothing about it. The experiment, he tells us, had been tried of wiping the ointment off the weapon without the knowledge of the person hurt, with the result that he was presently in a great rage of pain until the weapon was anointed again. Moreover, it is affirmed that if you cannot get the weapon, yet if you put an instrument of iron or wood resembling the weapon into the wound, whereby it bleedeth, the anointing of that instrument will serve and work the effect. Remedies of the sort which Bacon deemed worthy of his attention are still in vogue in the eastern counties of England. 
Thus in Suffolk, if a man cuts himself with a billhook or scythe, he always takes care to keep the weapon bright and oils it to prevent the wound from festering. If he runs a thorn, or, as he calls it, a bush, into his hand, he oils or greases the extracted thorn. A man came to a doctor with an inflamed hand, having run a thorn into it while he was hedging. On being told that the hand was festering, he remarked, "'That didn't ought to, for I greased the bush well after I pulled it out.' If a horse wounds its foot by treading on a nail, a Suffolk groom will invariably preserve the nail, clean it and grease it every day, to prevent the foot from festering. Similarly, Cambridgeshire labourers think that if a horse has run a nail into its foot, it is necessary to grease the nail with lard or oil, and put it away in some safe place, or the horse will not recover. A few years ago a veterinary surgeon was sent for to attend a horse, which had ripped its side open on the hinge of a farm gatepost. On arriving at the farm he found that nothing had been done to the wounded horse, but that a man was busy trying to prise the hinge out of the gatepost, in order that it might be greased and put away, which, in the opinion of the Cambridge wiseacres, would conduce to the recovery of the animal. Similarly, Essex rustics opine that if a man has been stabbed with a knife, it is essential to his recovery that the knife should be greased and laid across the bed on which the sufferer is lying. So in Bavaria you are directed to anoint a linen rag with grease and tie it on the edge of the axe that cuts you, taking care to keep the sharp edge upwards. As the grease on the axe dries, your wound heals. Similarly, in the Hartz Mountains, they say that if you cut yourself, you ought to smear the knife or the scissors with fat, and put the instrument away in a dry place, in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. As the knife dries, the wound heals. Other people, however, in Germany, say that you should stick the knife in some damp place in the ground, and that your hurt will heal as the knife rusts. Others again in Bavaria recommend you to smear the axe, or whatever it is, with blood, and put it under the eaves. The train of reasoning which thus commends itself to English and German rustics, in common with the savages of Melanesia and America, is carried a step farther by the Aborigines of Central Australia, who conceive that under certain circumstances the near relations of a wounded man must grease themselves, restrict their diet, and regulate their behaviour in other ways in order to ensure his recovery. Thus, when a lad has been circumcised, and the wound is not yet healed, his mother may not eat a possum, or a certain kind of lizard, or carpet-snake, or any kind of fat, for otherwise she would retard the healing of the boy's wound. Every day she greases her digging-sticks, and never lets them out of her sight. At night she sleeps with them close to her head. No one is allowed to touch them. Every day also she rubs her body all over with grease, as in some way this is believed to help her son's recovery. Another refinement of the same principle is due to the ingenuity of the German peasant. It is said that when one of his pigs or sheep breaks its leg, a farmer of Rhenish Bavaria or Hesse will bind up the leg of a chair with bandages and splints in due form. For some days thereafter no one may sit on that chair, move it or knock up against it, for to do so would pain the injured pig or sheep and hinder the cure. In this last case it is clear that we have passed wholly out of the region of contagious magic, 
and into the region of homeopathic or imitative magic. The chair-leg, which is treated instead of the beast's leg, in no sense belongs to the animal, and the application of bandages to it is a mere simulation of the treatment which a more rational surgery would bestow on the real patient. The sympathetic connection supposed to exist between a man and the weapon which has wounded him is probably founded on the notion that the blood on the weapon continues to feel with the blood in his body. For a like reason the Papuans of Tumleo, an island off New Guinea, are careful to throw into the sea the bloody bandages with which their wounds have been dressed, for they fear that if these rags fell into the hands of an enemy he might injure them magically thereby. Once, when a man with a wound in his mouth, which bled constantly, came to the missionaries to be treated, his faithful wife took great pains to collect all the blood and cast it into the sea. Strained and unnatural as this idea may seem to us, it is perhaps less so than the belief that magic sympathy is maintained between a person and his clothes, so that whatever is done to the clothes will be felt by the man himself, even though he may be far away at the time. In the Wachabaluk tribe of Victoria, a wizard would sometimes get hold of a man's opossum rug and roast it slowly in the fire, and as he did so, the owner of the rug would fall sick. If the wizard consented to undo the charm, he would give the rug back to the sick man's friends, bidding them put it in water, so as to wash the fire out. When that happened, the sufferer would feel a refreshing coolness, and probably recover. In Tana, one of the New Hebrides, a man who had a grudge at another and desired his death would try to get possession of a cloth which had touched the sweat of his enemy's body. If he succeeded, he rubbed the cloth carefully over the leaves and twigs of a certain tree, rolled and bound cloth, twigs and leaves into a long sausage-shaped bundle, and burnt it slowly in the fire. As the bundle was consumed, the victim fell ill, and when it was reduced to ashes, he died. In this last form of enchantment, however, the magical sympathy may be supposed to exist not so much between the man and the cloth as between the man and the sweat which issued from his body. But in other cases of the same sort, it seems that the garment by itself is enough to give the sorcerer a hold upon his victim. The witch in Theocritus, while she melted an image or lump of wax, in order that her faithless lover might melt with love of her, did not forget to throw into the fire a shred of his cloak which he had dropped in her house. In Prussia they say that if you cannot catch a thief, the next best thing you can do is to get hold of a garment which he may have shed in his flight, for if you beat it soundly the thief will fall sick. This belief is firmly rooted in the popular mind. Some eighty or ninety years ago, in the neighbourhood of Berend, a man was detected trying to steal honey, and fled, leaving his coat behind him. When he heard that the enraged owner of the honey was mauling his lost coat, he was so alarmed that he took to his bed and died. Again, magic may be wrought on a man sympathetically, not only through his clothes and severed parts of himself, but also through the impressions left by his body in sand or earth. In particular, it is a world-wide superstition that by injuring footprints you injure the feet that made them. Thus the natives of southeastern Australia think that they can lame a man by placing sharp pieces of quartz, glass, bone, or charcoal in his footprints. Rheumatic pains are often attributed by them to this cause. Seeing a Tantungolung man very lame, Mr. Howitt asked him what was the matter. 
he said, some fellow has put bottle in my foot. He was suffering from rheumatism, but believed that an enemy had found his foot-track, and had buried in it a piece of broken bottle, the magic influence of which had entered his foot. Similar practices prevail in various parts of Europe. Thus in Mecklenburg it is thought that if you drive a nail into a man's footprint, he will fall lame. Sometimes it is required that the nail should be taken from a coffin. A like mode of injuring an enemy is resorted to in some parts of France. It is said that there was an old woman who used to frequent Stowe in Suffolk, and she was a witch. If, while she walked, any one went after her and stuck a nail or a knife into her footprint in the dust, the dame could not stir a step till it was withdrawn. Among the South Slavs, a girl will dig up the earth from the footprints of the man she loves and put it in a flower-pot. Then she plants in the pot a marigold, a flower that is thought to be fadeless. And as its golden blossom grows and blooms and never fades, so shall her sweetheart's love grow and bloom and never, never fade. Thus the love-spell acts on the man through the earth he trod on. An old Danish mode of concluding a treaty was based on the same idea of the sympathetic connection between a man and his footprints. The covenanting parties sprinkled each other's footprints with their own blood, thus giving a pledge of fidelity. In ancient Greece, superstitions of the same sort seem to have been current, for it was thought that if a horse stepped on the track of a wolf, he was seized with numbness, and a maxim, ascribed to Pythagoras, forbade people to pierce a man's footprints with a nail or a knife. The same superstition is turned to account by hunters in many parts of the world for the purpose of running down the game. Thus a German huntsman will stick a nail taken from a coffin into the fresh spore of the quarry, believing that this will hinder the animal from escaping. The aborigines of Victoria put hot embers in the tracks of the animal they were pursuing. Hot and tot hunters throw into the air a handful of sand taken from the footprints of the game, believing that this will bring the animal down. Thompson Indians used to lay charms on the tracks of wounded deer, after that they deemed it superfluous to pursue the animal any farther that day, for being thus charmed it could not travel far, and would soon die. Similarly, Objebwe Indians placed medicine on the track of the first deer or bear they met with, supposing that this would soon bring the animal into sight, even if it were two or three days' journey off, for this charm had power to compress a journey of several days into a few hours. Ewe hunters of West Africa stabbed the footprints of game with a sharp-pointed stick in order to maim the quarry and allow them to come up with it. But though the footprint is the most obvious, it is not the only impression made by the body through which magic may be wrought on a man. The Aborigines of southeastern Australia believe that a man may be injured by burying sharp fragments of quartz, glass and so forth in the mark made by his reclining body. The magical virtue of these sharp things enters his body and causes those acute pains which the ignorant European puts down to rheumatism. We can now understand why it was a maxim with the Pythagoreans that in rising from bed you should smooth away the impression left by your body on the bedclothes. The rule was simply an old precaution against magic, forming part of a whole code of superstitious maxims which antiquity fathered on Pythagoras, though doubtless they were familiar to the barbarous forefathers of the Greeks long before the time of that philosopher. Part 4 
The Magician's Progress. We have now concluded our examination of the general principles of sympathetic magic. The examples by which I have illustrated them have been drawn for the most part from what may be called private magic, that is, from magical rites and incantations practised for the benefit or the injury of individuals. But in savage society there is commonly to be found in addition what we may call public magic, that is, sorcery practised for the benefit of the whole community. Wherever ceremonies of this sort are observed for the common good, it is obvious that the magician ceases to be merely a private practitioner and becomes to some extent a public functionary. The development of such a class of functionaries is of great importance for the political as well as the religious evolution of society, for when the welfare of the tribe is supposed to depend on the performance of these magical rites, the magician rises into a position of much influence and repute, and may readily acquire the rank and authority of a chief or king. The profession, accordingly, draws into its ranks some of the ablest and most ambitious men of the tribe, because it holds out to them a prospect of honour, wealth and power, such as hardly any other career could offer. The acuter minds perceive how easy it is to dupe their weaker brother and to play on his superstitions for their own advantage. Not that the sorcerer is always a knave and impostor. He is often sincerely convinced that he really possesses those wonderful powers which the credulity of his fellows ascribes to him. But the more sagacious he is, the more likely he is to see through the fallacies which impose on duller wits. Thus the ablest members of the profession must tend to be more or less conscious deceivers, and it is just these men who, in virtue of their superior ability, will generally come to the top and win for themselves positions of the highest dignity and the most commanding authority. The pitfalls which beset the path of the professional sorcerer are many, and as a rule only the man of coolest head and sharpest wit will be able to steer his way through them safely. For it must always be remembered that every single profession and claim put forward by the magician as such is false. Not one of them can be maintained without deception, conscious or unconscious. Accordingly, the sorcerer who sincerely believes in his own extravagant pretensions is in far greater peril and is much more likely to be cut short in his career than the deliberate impostor. The honest wizard always expects that his charms and incantations will produce their supposed effect, and when they fail, not only really, as they always do, but conspicuously and disastrously, as they often do, he is taken aback. He is not, like his knavish colleague, ready with a plausible excuse to account for the failure, and before he can find one he may be knocked on the head by his disappointed and angry employers. The general result is that at this stage of social evolution the supreme power tends to fall into the hands of men of the keenest intelligence and the most unscrupulous character. If we could balance the harm they do by their knavery against the benefits they confer by their superior sagacity, it might well be found that the good greatly outweighed the evil. For more mischief has probably been wrought in the world by honest fools in high places than by intelligent rascals. Once your shrewd rogue has attained the height of his ambition, and has no longer any selfish end to further, he may, and often does, turn his talents, his experience, his resources, to the service of the public. 
Many men who have been least scrupulous in the acquisition of power have been most beneficent in the use of it, whether the power they aimed at, and won, was that of wealth, political authority, or what not. In the fields of politics, the wily intriguer, the ruthless victor, may end by being a wise and magnanimous ruler, blessed in his lifetime, lamented at his death, admired and applauded by posterity. Such men, to take two of the most conspicuous instances, were Julius Caesar and Augustus. But once a fool, always a fool, and the greater the power in his hands, the more disastrous is likely to be the use he makes of it. The heaviest calamity in English history, the breach with America, might never have occurred if George the Third had not been an honest dullard. Thus, so far as the public profession of magic affected the constitution of savage society, it tended to place the control of affairs in the hands of the ablest man. It shifted the balance of power from the many to the one. It substituted a monarchy for a democracy, or rather for an oligarchy of old men, for in general the savage community is ruled not by the whole body of adult males, but by a council of elders. The change, by whatever causes produced, and whatever the character of the early rulers, was on the whole very beneficial, for the rise of monarchy appears to be an essential condition of the emergence of mankind from savagery. No human being is so hide-bound by custom and tradition as your democratic savage. In no state of society, consequently, is progress so slow and difficult. The old notion that the savage is the freest of mankind is the reverse of the truth. He is a slave, not indeed to a visible master, but to the past, to the spirits of his dead forefathers, who haunt his steps from birth to death, and rule him with a rod of iron. What they did is the pattern of right, the unwritten law, to which he yields a blind, unquestioning obedience. The least possible scope is thus afforded to superior talent to change old customs for the better. The ablest man is dragged down by the weakest and dullest, who necessarily sets the standard, since he cannot rise, while the other can fall. The surface of such a society presents a uniform dead level, so far as it is humanly possible to reduce the natural inequalities, the immeasurable real differences of inborn capacity and temper, to a false superficial appearance of equality. From this low and stagnant condition of affairs, which demagogues and dreamers in later times have lauded as the ideal state, the golden age of humanity, everything that helps to raise society by opening a career to talent and proportioning the degrees of authority to men's natural abilities deserves to be welcomed by all who have the real good of their fellows at heart. Once these elevating influences have begun to operate, and they cannot be for ever suppressed, the progress of civilization becomes comparatively rapid. The rise of one man to supreme power enables him to carry through changes in a single lifetime which previously many generations might not have sufficed to effect, and if, as will often happen, he is a man of intellect and energy above the common, he will readily avail himself of the opportunity. Even the whims and caprices of a tyrant may be of service in breaking the chain of custom which lies so heavy on the savage. 
and as soon as the tribe ceases to be swayed by the timid and divided counsels of the elders, and yields to the direction of a single strong and resolute mind, it becomes formidable to its neighbours, and enters on a career of aggrandizement, which at an early stage of history is often highly favourable to social, industrial and intellectual progress. For extending its sway, partly by force of arms, partly by the voluntary submission of weaker tribes, the community soon acquires wealth and slaves, both of which, by relieving some classes from the perpetual struggle for a bare subsistence, afford them an opportunity of devoting themselves to that disinterested pursuit of knowledge which is the noblest and most powerful instrument to ameliorate the lot of man. Intellectual progress, which reveals itself in the growth of art and science, and the spread of more liberal views, cannot be dissociated from industrial or economic progress, and that, in its turn, receives an immense impulse from conquest and empire. It is no mere accident that the most vehement outbursts of activity of the human mind have followed close on the heels of victory, and that the great conquering races of the world have commonly done most to advance and spread civilization, thus healing in peace the wounds they inflicted in war. The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs are our witnesses in the past. We may yet live to see a similar outburst in Japan. Nor, to remount the stream of history to its sources, is it an accident that all the first great strides towards civilization have been made under despotic and theocratic governments, like those of Egypt, Babylon, and Peru, where the supreme ruler claimed and received the servile allegiance of his subjects in the double character of a king and a god. It is hardly too much to say that at this early epoch despotism is the best friend of humanity, and, paradoxical as it may sound, of liberty. For after all there is more liberty in the best sense, liberty to think our own thoughts and to fashion our own destinies, under the most absolute despotism, the most grinding tyranny, than under the apparent freedom of savage life, where the individual's lot is cast from the cradle to the grave in the iron mould of hereditary custom. So far, therefore, as the public profession of magic has been one of the roads by which the ablest men have passed to supreme power, it has contributed to emancipate mankind from the thraldom of tradition, and to elevate them into a larger, freer life, with a broader outlook on the world. This is no small service rendered to humanity, and when we remember further that in another direction magic has paved the way for science, we are forced to admit that if the black art has done much evil, it has also been the source of much good, that if it is the child of error, it has yet been the mother of freedom and truth. End of chapter 3 of The Golden Bough